0: Hi there, welcome to our living room. We are here to talk to you about giving a little joy this Christmas. Now, usually at Christmas time we have our hamper appeal where we gather a whole lot of things together and we actually go and give hampers to people in need. But this year we're doing something different. That's right, this year we are giving gift cards. We've got gift cards, we're doing gift cards to Coles and Woolworths and their affiliated stores. So, we thought this morning that we would talk to you a little bit about what uh, you could possibly get, what a family could get with a gift card. Mm. So the first amount that you can get is you can spend $10 and $10 kind of gives a moment. It's like really good cheese and crackers and sitting outside in summer and just having a moment to breathe. That's what you're giving with $10. So good. Yeah. yeah. We had that good cheese the other day. Didn't we? That was so good. It was so good. Oh, I was supposed to be holding it up now, right? Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. It was a really good cheese though. It was like $9 cheese and it was like... It was a great moment. It was a great moment. Which you could gift to somebody. Amazing! Amazing! The next amount that you can give is you can give $20. $20 is all of those Christmas extras. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like advent calendars, like fruit mince pies. They even have um, apple ones of these that are far less disgusting. I know some of you like fruit mince pies, and that's okay. There's no judgment here. But uh, yeah, what are the extra things that you could bless somebody with at Christmas? Yeah, the third amount that you can give is you can give fifty dollars. Fifty dollars. What's amazing about this is it's also for all of the affiliated stores. So fifty dollars can give a gift. It can give that gift that a child really really wants. Like Just kind of amazing. This is Tiago's Christmas gift. Don't tell him. It's a secret. And the last amount that you can give is you can give $100, which gives a really nice dinner. Uh, a dinner for a family or a household. That beautiful Christmas dinner, which is really what we want to be able to give. That is not a Christmas dinner. <laughs> that is a gingerbread. No, but it's like it's, it's like a ginger household. that's how it's <laughs> related. I see. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, let's bring the people in our community who are doing it tough, a little bit of joy this Christmas. Get yourself a gift card when you're doing your shopping. Put it in the mailbox, in the tin foyer next to the tree. Get yourself a little card, write your name on it, pick it on the tree, and let's make
1: our city a place of joy this Christmas. Let's do
0: that.
1: Good morning, family. I think Phil has passed on the sheikhs to me. It must be the Holy Spirit, I think. Our reading this morning is taken from Joshua 21, verse 43 to 22, verse 20. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies would stoot them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His commands, to hold fast to Him, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan, and to the other half-tribe, half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan, along with their fellow Israelites. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them saying, return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Galiloth, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Galiloth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered, gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead. You can stop, that's for me. To Reuben, and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Esther. I just had to stop her because she was giving away the punchline. And um, I wanted to just leave it there for a moment um, with those tribes leaving to go home because that was a lot, and I thank you very much because that was so much reading to do. So thank you, Esther, for that. Do you love that our church has a cafe? I love that our church has a cafe. I have a young friend, and she tells me this story about... um, Going to a new church for the first time. Hang on, I'm stuck. I'm not going to stand there. About going to a church, and I think this church must have had a cafe alongside of it too. Because she says to me, Avet, I started to get really annoyed when young couples would come in and um, they were late to church, we'd already started. And not only that, but they're like holding a cafe buzzer. I was like thinking, like you're already late and you've stopped on your way in to order coffee. And she said, like, what are they going to do, like, when their buzzer goes off? You know what I'm talking about, right? You get that when you go to a cafe and you put it on the table where you went and it goes off and it gives you a fright. So what are, gonna, what are they going to do when their buzzer goes off? they Are going to leave the service and go out and collect their coffee? And she said, you know, she started kind of making assumptions about, about them, about their worship before God, based on the fact that they thought coffee was more important than than coming in and singing and praising and worshipping. And then a little time had gone by and she decided that it was, it was probably good to start checking her daughter into the creche. So they go in for the first time and they're settling their daughter and they fill in some paperwork. And the person who was behind the, the check-in desk said, look, she's gonna have a great time and you're gonna have, she's gonna love it here. But just in case for any reason we need you, we're gonna buzz you on this. And they handed over to her a cafe pager. Ah, she realised. Those hipsters with their coffee, they were actually checking in their kids. I wonder if you've ever made a mistake like that, judged another person in church, made an assumption about them that turned out later to be wrong. Sometimes we do it. And that thing my friend did, it has a technical name, It's called the Fundamental Attribution Error. So the Fundamental Attribution Error is when we see someone do something that we think is wrong or bad, and then we make assumptions about their character based on what we saw. So you, you sometimes get this in traffic where you've got plenty of time to pull up to the red light, but the person beside you goes flying through the light. And you're like, how rude. are so impatient and reckless. You know, we tend to jump toward assumptions about that person's character rather than maybe thinking, "Oh, they must be in a terrible rush because there's a mega accident and they've got to get to the hospital. Do you think that we do that? I think we do that. You know, the case with my friend and the coffee buzzer that turned out to be a kid buzzer, not really that big a deal. You know, she was very kind of, Humble as she told me about that. You know, she admitted her mistake sheepishly, and and no harm came. But sometimes this habit of attributing poor motives or poor character can have much more significant outcomes. Sometimes it can lead to divisions, divisions in friendships, in marriage, in workplaces and in Christian community. My message today is a continuation in our series on our vision statement to be flourishing communities of hope. And today we're going to talk about the communities part. Why communities and not community? Because we're made up of so many communities here at Kerry, aren't we? Schools and our cafe, and I mentioned that jump. We've got two campuses of our church, two colleges, lots of communities that make up flourishing communities of hope. So we're going to take a look a little more um, into Joshua 22, the story that Esther read for us. And we're going to look at the story of the fundamental attribution error that nearly resulted in the genocide of two and a half people groups. And we're going to look at how the fundamental attribution error damages the Christian community and how we sometimes let misunderstandings and poor communication get in the way of being unified with one another. But before I do that, let's pray I'm not going to step out there again because I won't be able to get back. Father God, I just ask that you will help me communicate clearly. I ask that you will help convict us in the beautiful, gentle and loving way that you do. That doesn't help us, doesn't make us go away feeling hopeless, but with a plan. I thank you for your people, Lord. I thank you for your love for us. Amen. All right, let's dive in. So we're going to recap on what Esther's read so far. So we looked at the beginning of Joshua 22. And I want to just um, explain it in my own words, what we just read, so that we're really all on the same page. So I have a map for you to look at while we're doing that. So the Israelites had wandered in the desert for 40 years and they fought many battles to finally take possession of the promised land, that is the land to the west of the Jordan River. And Joshua 22 begins in the city or the town of Shiloh at the tent of meetings. So this is kind of their holy place. And the allotment of land for the people of Israel had just drawn to a close. And each tribe had been given the portion of land that they were to inhabit, live on, build their homes and make their lives. And then um, Joshua turns his attention to the half-tribes of Manasseh and to the tribe of Reuben and Gad. The story had told us earlier, back in uh, Numbers 32, that those tribes, those last three tribes, they'd already been given the land that they were to settle on. So they had already asked, could they settle in Gilead? Because the pastures there were really good. And so as they're passing through this land, they're like, that's our land, we'd love to be there. And Moses had said to them, yes, you can have that land, but you must carry on fighting with us. If you remain loyal and you help us get into the Promised Land, then we'll send you back there." And so they weren't to go back there until they'd won the battle. And so then what we've read this morning is that the fighting is over, the Promised Land has been taken, all the tribes are settled, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Reuben and Gad, have that opportunity now to return home. And they're going home to their wives and their children. They're going home to their non-fighting men. They're going home to people that they haven't seen in quite some time. So this is a time for celebration for them, this big assembly, this meeting. And I imagine it's quite a nice moment for them all. In front of what Joshua calls their fellow Israelites, they're praised as faithful. They're given permission to return home to their families with all the spoils of war to share amongst their people. The story has a really happy beginning They'd been faithful to God as they promised Moses they would, and they received their reward for keeping that promise. But then what happens next? On the way home, just before they cross over the Jordan River, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh build a really big altar, an imposing altar, a stone structure. The narrator doesn't tell us why. They just build a really big thing, And when the other tribes hear about this altar, they start to get worried. They know what's happened. The altar has been built. But what is it that they've done? What have Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh done here? Why have they built this thing? And then they assume the worst. They get themselves really worked up, being worried and scared. And before we know it, they're planning to go to war. Why were they so angry at their fellow Israelites that they'd go to war against them? I think they were afraid of what the altar meant. Their interpretation of the altar was that the tribes that had been sent out had already, already started worshipping and sacrificing to false gods, and they were afraid. Had they turned away from God so soon? That's obviously what the assembly had assumed. And if this is the case, that's really bad news. Really bad news. Because they've seen before what happens when part of the family of God is disobedient toward God. It affects the whole family of God, so it affects them. When part of the family is unfaithful, the whole family suffers. Fortunately for everyone, the Western tribes send a delegate, a delegation, a group of a little group of people to go ahead of them and take out before they go to war. What actually is going on here? So the story continues with the response of the accused. And I'm going to read again from 21. Then Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clan of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this had been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt sacrifices and grain offerings or to offer sacrifice fellowships on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? I really like their response so far. It's humble. No, we didn't do it for that reason and may God like deal with us if we had, but we didn't. They're humble and they're like quite insistent, aren't they? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. That's what they think they're going to say. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary... It's to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow, that we will follow the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, You have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not as a burnt off- not for burnt offerings and sacrifices. But as a witness between us and you, far be it for us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before the tabernacle. Okay, so fuel. They haven't done the wrong thing. They've just built a monument in praise to God as a reminder. And, and you know, let's read on. Like, that's a pretty happy thing. When Phineas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say. They were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gedites in Gilead, and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gedites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gedites gave the altar this name, a witness between us, that the Lord is God. So the story ends happily, thank goodness. And I love this story for the highs and the lows And also, I think it has a lot to say about conflict. I think that what happened here with the 12 tribes of Israel happens all the time when we're in communities. There's a lot that we can notice about the conflict in the passage, but I want to focus on two things. Two things we can observe about the conflict that went on between the East and the West, and we can draw some parallels to conflicts that often go on inside communities today. So the first one. The first one is the Western tribe made that typical mistake of the fundamental attribution error. If we think about what happened in this conflict, we see that the Western tribes were basically freaking out because they thought that the three tribes had built an altar to sacrifice to God, to false gods, sorry. But if we think about that, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. First, this imposing altar was on the Western side of the Jordan in, the, in Canaan, in the Promised Land side. The troops of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they live on the other side of the river. Hardly practical to build an altar to sacrifice on the wrong side of the river, especially if you're going to have to go there regularly to make your sacrifices. Secondly, the passage tells us that the Israelites heard that they had built an altar. They didn't see that they had built an altar, They didn't go and check out this altar, they just heard about it. If they'd gone to inspect the altar, they would have seen that there was no blood there, there was no ashes there for building fires and sacrificing animals. They would have seen a clean structure and they would have realised their mistake. They heard about the altar, they made an assumption about their brothers' hearts based on the little evidence they had. They instinctively assumed the worst about them. And secondly, the thing I want to notice is that it would seem that the eastern tribes had a good reason to build the altar. It was on their walk home that they came up with this idea. They'd started worrying that their brothers and sisters were leaving behind, the ones that were leaving behind on the west, would eventually forget that they were also a part of the people of God. They started to worry that the west would say that the Jordan was a boundary line and the only people in the promised land got to be the people of God. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were worried for their children. The altar was to serve as a reminder that, hey, we are over here, but we are also the people of God. We're God's people too. The Jordan River, though not a significant physical barrier, like maybe it was only actually about 30 metres wide. I checked with my Old Testament lecturer on that, and he said probably about 30 metres wide. And Baden last week stepped it out for me. And we think this auditorium is about 30 metres wide. So so perhaps not a huge physical barrier, but a barrier all the same. And they assumed that their physical separation would contribute something to the hardening of their hearts. And maybe also the Eastern tribes, they sensed something in the way the Western tribes related to them, a kind of othering that, they might have felt in the way that they spoke or acted. And there's a few hints in the passage that make me think this. So if you put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the eastern tribes, you might be more likely to notice it. As they walked away from the tent of meeting to go home, I think they started talking about it with each other. In the speech in verse 15, those living in the promised land said to Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the whole assembly of the Lord says... But wait a minute, aren't the eastern tribes also part of the assembly of the Lord? In their language, the western tribes had already alienated them. We are the people of God, they claimed. We are in, which means you are out. You are not part of the whole assembly of the Lord, you people who live on the other side of the Jordan. And I think that that's what the passage speaks to us today. That maybe we do this to each other too sometimes. I I have the privilege of speaking at um, other churches, other Baptist churches as part of my role with Baptist Churches of Western Australia. So if I'm not here, I might be off preaching somewhere else. And I was preparing this message, because, you know, recycling is good, a similar message to this for um, another church. And I thought it was done, like in my prep. And so I'd got to that point and I thought I've made the point. And then I had um, kind of like a little mental picture in my mind, it was a very vivid image came to my mind, and it was of a small church, and they had a little river, and it was going from the the front, like just a teeny tiny little creek stream thing, going through the middle, down an island to the back, and in, in the mental picture I had, the service had finished, and there were people talking, and they kind of just stepped over the river as they were chatting, and they didn't really pay much attention to it or think much of it, they just stepped over it again. And I felt like God was trying to tell me not to miss the significance of the river. And, you know, when I arrived at that church, it looked exactly like it had in my mind, even though I'd never been there before. And uh, so I told them about the little vision. And I, I pointed out the imaginary creek that I'd seen. And I suggested that maybe God wanted to say something to them about maybe a division in their church. I told them that. And nobody threw anything at me, so it went okay. And, you know, I think it actually might be a truth that's universal for all communities of faith, for all God's people, wherever we gather. I want to suggest that there could be little Jordan rivers that run through our congregations. So what do I mean by little Jordans? I mean those little currents that run through the congregation that separate some from others. The little barriers that could lead to conflict and if not dealt with, well, the separation of a whole people group. And there might not be any rivers here. I lo- yeah, this is a beautiful community. But if they w- if there were, what might they look like? I'm just coming up with a few thoughts. They could look like small divisions along racial lines or according to ethnic background. They could be little divisions because some of us worship a haristyle while others are carrying at night and others still over at Forest Forestdale. There could be division because some like to throw their hands wide in worship, while others like to stand with their hands tucked. But it doesn't mean that God's not moving on the inside. And I wondered whether to leave that out because of what Charles said before. But you know what, I think I love it when you all throw your hands wide, and I'm going to do it. But we judge those who don't. That's between them and God. The language that I use might make some feel as though I'm in and they're out. Could be division over theological differences that some might see as rivers as wide as the Indian Ocean, but are actually just tiny little things. Opposing views on same-sex marriage or the role of women in the church. There's a couple of examples. This passage reminds us that unity in the body of believers is essential. It reminds us that when we make assumptions about other people's faith based on the way they worship or based on our misunderstandings of who they are, we cause division. This passage shows us that we must seek to understand. We must seek to be unified as a body or we risk destroying the body altogether. The Eastern tribes got one thing right. Sorry, the Western tribes got one thing right. They went to speak to their brothers and their sisters before they went to war against them. But I believe that before that, they were getting plenty of things wrong. The Eastern tribes built the altar because they were afraid, they felt othered. They felt once they crossed the Jordan River, they were going to be on the outside of the community. And that the tribes on the inside would forget all about them and deny their rights to be called sons and daughters. So who do we consider the other? What little Jordans could run between us today? Maybe you can't think of any. Maybe we need to ask God, show us what they could be here. Maybe we could be subconsciously othering others and not even realising that we're doing it. I know I've been challenged to think more on that. What unified the Western and Eastern tribes at the end of the passage it was the discovery that they both loved Yahweh. They both loved God. The Western tribes had found a way to express that love that confused and worried the Sorry, the Eastern tribes had found a way to express that that confused and worried the Western tribes. East and West, I just saw West. But it was an expression that was good and it was pleasing to God. We can learn from this that diversity in the way we express our love for God is okay. What remains essential is that we do love him. Paul writes to the church in Galatia in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is what unifies us, that we are all followers of Christ. And I think the beautiful thing is that we... we grow more like Christ. We grow more like each other. All heading in the same direction. Each and every one of us belongs to this community. And the Kerry communities will continue to flourish as we make every effort in unity toward Christ. You know, what would be wrong is if we had no conflict at all. That would just be pseudo-community. We actually need conflict. We need to have disagreement and then we need to come together and talk about them. But we need to start with that, assuming the best of each other and then reaching out in love. We've got to strive toward having that unity in community. When we don't have information, instead of thinking the worst, let's think the best of one another. Let's not attribute bad motives to others. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And if doubt arises, let's communicate. Let's not let the little Jordans come between us as people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are a unified people and unified in our love for you and your love for us. Unified in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, on the cross. I thank you that as we grow more in likeness to you, in our daily practices as we are striving to become more Christ-like, that we are actually then growing more like each other. Please help us to do that, Lord. And when little divisions arise, as they always do in good community, I pray, God, that you'll give us the courage and the wisdom and the kindness to sort them out and to do it really well. Amen.